0: Podcast from the Caldor Centre for International Refugee Law at UNSW Sydney. For more information, go to www.caldorcentre.unsw.edu.au. Good afternoon. My name is Jane McAdam, and I'm the Director of the Caldor Centre for International Refugee Law at the University of New South Wales in Sydney. Thank you so much for joining us today from all over the world. I just wish my voice had also got the memo to join properly. Apologies. At the outset, I'd like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the lands on which we are meeting, and I pay my respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. The Caldor Centre is delighted to be able to host this seminar today entitled, Reexamining Displacement in the Context of Disasters and Climate Change, A Pacific Perspective. It forms part of the Asia-Pacific component of a global conference running over the course of this week, convened under the auspices of UNHCR, the UN Refugee Agency, and the Global Academic Interdisciplinary Network, known as GAIN. The conference commemorates the 70th anniversary of UNHCR's statute, which established and defined the role of the High Commissioner for Refugees. Yet virtually since its inception, the relationship between UNHCR's refugee responsibilities and its broader humanitarian role has involved some tension. Over the past 70 years, UNHCR's functions and responsibilities have broadened considerably, as have the categories of people it protects. Today's panel problematises and critiques the notion of displacement in the context of climate change and disasters and explores how a more nuanced understanding of such displacement can open up possibilities for different kinds of solutions. While climate and disaster related displacement may seem like a relatively new area of work for UNHCR, in fact, as early as 1991, UNHCR's Executive Committee Working Group on Solutions and Protection specifically discussed the question of protection for people displaced by disasters. A discussion paper the following year in 1992, noted the disjuncture between the international community's obligation to provide such people with protection and the discretionary response of states. In the intervening years, that so-called academic debate has been overtaken by UNHCR's operational engagement with disaster displacement and in more recent years by its normative engagement as well. Indeed, given the scale and protection challenges of disaster disaster displacement poses, it would be unconscionable for UNHCR not to act. Around the world, the adverse impacts of disasters and climate change are prompting millions of people to move each year. Disasters now displace three times as many people within their countries than conflict. And the Asia Pacific region is the hardest hit. Internal displacement is already a reality in the Pacific Islands as disasters intensify and become more frequent, exacerbated by the impacts of climate change. Preventative measures, such as mitigation, adaptation, and disaster risk reduction, along with proactive measures like enhanced mobility, could significantly reduce the risk of future displacement and thereby also reduce economic and social costs. Most Pacific Islanders want to remain in their homes, but there's also widespread recognition that people do need to have options to move out of harm's way before disaster strikes. Migration can be a powerful and empowering adaptation measure in its own right. Something that will be explored today by our three expert panellists, whom I now have the pleasure of introducing. Dr. Celia McMichael is a senior lecturer in the School of Geography at the University of Melbourne. Her research focuses on health geography, international health, migrant and refugee health, and climate change-related migration and displacement. She's worked in numerous countries, including Nepal, Fiji, Angola, and so on. And she's currently working on research projects focusing on refugee resettlement in Australia and climate change-related migration and relocation in small island states. Welcome, Celia. Dr. Tammy Tabe is a lecturer at PACE-SD at the University of South Pacific in Suva in Fiji. She was raised in the Solomon Islands and is of Ikiribas and Tuvalu descent. She holds a bachelor's degree in marine affairs and geography and a postgraduate diploma in Pacific Island Studies from the University of Hawaii. She completed her PhD in social anthropology at the University of Bergen in Norway, and her research over the years has examined the forced relocation of Kiribati people to the Solomon Islands from the 1950s. She's been able to identify lessons for contemporary policymaking in relation to Pacific Island countries whose populations may may become subject to relocation. Chanel Taui is an international refugee and human rights lawyer who has worked on refugee, asylum and displacement matters in 14 Pacific Island countries since 2013. As an associate legal officer at UNHCR's office based in Canberra, She's developed internal policy on UNHCR's strategic response to displacement in the context of climate change and disasters in the Pacific. Chanel has direct experience in relation to humanitarian emergencies, including having been deployed as a protection officer to respond to the South Sudanese emergency. She's an Australian lawyer and of half Fijian descent, holding a Bachelor of Law degree from Murdoch University, as well as a master's specialising in international law from Cambridge University. Celia, if I could turn to you first. There are lots of different terms that get used when we talk about movement in the context of climate change. So at the outset, could you please explain the distinction between displacement, migration, planned relocation and mobility and what they all mean in a Pacific context?
1: Uh, Yeah, it's a good place to start. Um, I think we're all very accustomed to hearing about kind of amorphous notion of a climate migrant or what is sometimes referred to problematically as a climate refugee. But within that kind of type of um, human migration, there are lots of forms um, that this takes. So forced displacement um, is a term which is used to refer to contexts where people Uh, are forcibly moved or displaced within or or across borders um, because of the impacts of, say, an environmental disaster. So um, to provide a Pacific example, um, last year tropical cyclone um, Harold swept through the Pacific Island region um, and it's estimated that around 80,000 people were displaced forcibly in the Solomon Islands, 10,000 in Fiji. Um, several hundred in Tonga, and you know, there are many other examples we could give of, of cyclones and environmental disasters and forced displacement. So, this is movement that's often short distance um, and short term within countries um, in the aftermath of a disaster. Um, migration is another term, um, uh, or climate related migration, which can refer to people who move within countries or across borders of countries. And here, this is a term where that mobility has an element of choice. So people are weighing up their options and they might choose to move or migrate, um, say to an urban area where there are um, lower environmental risks or more diverse livelihood options. Um, So that's a kind of second form of human mobility. And plan relocation is quite a specific term which is used to refer to organised movement of people um, or communities and typically with the the support of the government or the state. So an example might be um, where an entire village or part of a village who are experiencing, say, um, coastal erosion and flooding and saltwater intrusion due to sea level rise are moved to higher land um, in order to adapt to and move away from that climate risk. Um, And that's something that's starting to occur in Fiji and is being planned in other places such as the Solomon Islands and elsewhere. Um, So I think these are really important terms to understand because they highlight highlight that climate related migration and mobility um, can be very diverse. and, And these are all types of mobility that are occurring and are expected in the Pacific Islands.
0: Celia, thank you. It's Jane. Um, If I can jump back in again, I apologise. The street internet went down. So, you know, everything's stacked against me at the moment. Um, Frances, thank you for taking over. Um, Chanel, I'll I'll move now to you. UNHCR, in fact, has a long-standing operational role in protecting people displaced in the context of disasters, um, particularly when it comes to protecting people who are displaced within their own countries, IDPs. And I wondered if you could explain how this work developed and also, given the nature of this conference, how UNHCR sees this as falling uh, within its mandate, please.
2: Thank you, Jane. In terms of UNHCR's original mandate back in the 1950s, it really was just to focus solely on international protection for refugees and then finding permanent solutions for them. However, since then, what we have seen is operationally, in particular, we've gleaned a great amount of experience and expertise in the context of refugee displacement. And in turn, those um, skills that we've acquired are particularly relevant more broadly in any displacement scenario where humanitarian relief is needed. In particular, what we do see in all displacement contexts, although they have variations within them, of course, basic elements of protection that do need to be delivered. Some examples include individuals do need to be given a place of refuge where they're given on a non-discriminatory basis access to services um, and their basic needs are met Similarly, what we also see in displacement contexts is vulnerabilities for certain individuals, such as unaccompanied children, for example, are exacerbated, and we really need to identify them and ensure that they have access to necessary um, services and support. So really, as you mentioned initially at the start, um, Jane, we have this normative framework and a vast array of expertise, which are really relevant in terms of how we respond more broadly in terms of internal displacement caused by natural disasters. And this has been since 1999 that UNHCR has engaged in this work operationally. Even last year, for example, when Somalia was impacted by one of the most severe cyclones it's ever experienced. UNHCR responded to provide NFIs, um, not only to refugees, but also to internally displaced persons and the host communities, which are quite critical. And Somalia in and of itself is not only experiencing this disaster, but it's compounded by, of course, the COVID-19 pandemic, desert locusts, and also conflict. One other point I wanted to highlight in terms of the expansion of UNHCR's mandate is that climate change itself, although it does not cause displacement, it is a risk multiplier. So although food insecurity, um, in instances, sorry, of food insecurity and limited access to water, when that occurs in a country, what we then see is that additional pressures are placed on governance structures. And of course, Limited and scarcity in terms of overall resources for populations. So it's these combination of factors which can then lead to conflict and, of course, spark displacement. I think notably, seven of the ten countries which are most impacted by climate change also host peacekeeping operations. And in terms of the Asia Pacific region, it is worth noting that Afghanistan, which is quietly one of the most Um, hugely impacted by climate change um, impacts, experts have anticipated that going into the future, not only will there be more severe weather impacts, including floods, drought and extreme weather patterns, but in terms of the actual conflicts in Afghanistan, 80% of them are actually caused by scarcity around access to water, land and other resources. Um, one final point I want to note in terms of the expansion into this space and our mandate has been the evidence does suggest that in terms of where refugees and IDPs are located, it does tend to be in climate change hotspots, or also places that are more vulnerable in terms of um, exposure to natural disasters. So those places are considered not as um, desirable, perhaps for human settlement. So taking all of this into account this body of evidence that we have. Um, and are aware of, also our expertise and knowledge and around the normative frameworks and our field presence globally, UNHCR very much is committed to um, expanding its mandate. And of course, there's the direction by our Secretary-General for all UN agencies to contribute in this space. So not only do we respond to assist IDPs impacted by natural disasters, but we're also the global cluster lead on protection. And we really see our role not only as a refugee agency, but also having a mandate on protection issues in displacement
0: contexts. Thanks, Chanel. That was a really comprehensive overview. And I think you've made extremely clear um, how and why UNHCR uh, does and needs to act in this area. If I might now turn to you, Tammy, as I explained in my introduction, your research has focused a lot on the forced relocation of communities from Pacific islands uh, historically. Um, In particular, the movement of Gilbertese from present-day Kiribati to the Solomons in the 50s. There are a couple of other examples from the Pacific as well, such as the relocation of the Barnabans uh, from present-day Kiribati to Fiji in the 1940s, and a small movement of people from Tuvalu, again, to present-day Fiji around the same time. Although there seems to be not a lot of political appetite um, or even appetite among affected communities for a wholesale um, community cross-border relocation, so picking people up and moving to another country, we know that there are already a lot of internal relocations happening in the Pacific. And Fiji, for example, has adopted relocation guidelines. So the question I have to you after that very long preface is what lessons should we be learning from these past experiences?
3: Thank you, Jane. Um, Yeah, um, I'll just add to um, your statement on internal relocations that have already been um, taking place across the Pacific. And um, yes, there are several internal relocations that have already been taking place. Some have been extensively documented, while others have just recently been documented. And most of them are directly as a result of climate change. Others um, in other Pacific Island countries, for instance, are a result of development projects as well as climate related disasters, um, for instance, in the Solomon Islands. But as you mentioned earlier, um, Fiji is one of the first countries in the Pacific that has developed um, a relocation guidelines. And this is specifically to assist communities in Fiji um, in terms of planned relocation um, we your question two key lessons that we can learn from past relocation experiences. Um, there are several, I guess there are a few depending on what, what context um, we might be referring to, but um, I would like to highlight a few of them. I think in my work and research on the Gilberis, um relocation from the Gilbert Islands, today known as Kiribati's Solomon Islands, there are several key lessons that can be learned and I think the first two that I wanted to highlight are not very visible in terms of past relocations and I think the first one is the question of who decides you should move is of significance because um, usually we don't think about this Uh, but I think it's really important to take into into context now if we're planning for future planned relocation of communities as well as migration and I think the question um, of who decides you should move is of significance because it determines the level of expectations, um, the level of participation and commitment, especially of the community, the government, and the relevant stakeholders that are to be involved um, in relocating the group of people or the community. The second one is the scale and scope of the relocation. So when when we talk about relocation, Um, it's good to ask questions about the scale, the geographical scale of where people should move to or um, whether they should move within their land boundaries or beyond their land boundaries or between different islands. And I think that has not taken place in the Pacific by far. Um, People have been moving within their own land boundaries. Uh, But in the future, there might be um, cases where communities have to move beyond the land boundaries into others' land boundaries. So We need to be asking this kind of questions. Um, To add on to that, we need to also be asking about the scope of the relocation. Are we moving just a group of people? Um, How many households are we moving? Or are we moving the entire community or perhaps the entire island? I think this kind of questions help inform us in terms of not only uh, our preparation and our planning, but also in terms of our consultation with the communities. And I think the third one, um, which is quite common um, as a lesson from past relocation experiences is consultation and cons- consent with communities that are that are going to be relocated. And I think in terms of consultation, it's not just um, just several visits to the village, it's to the community to inform them of the planned relocation, but also just really understanding uh, their perceptions and their feelings, their thoughts, um, and how they see the relocation um, would be in terms of their, their future as well. Um, and also obtaining content from them, not only them, but also consulting with the receiving community. Often when we talk about relocation, we tend to focus more on the community that's going to be relocated. Um, And then we tend to neglect the receiving community. And I think it's really important to ensure that there is um, consultation with the receiving community as well as ensuring that we obtain their consent for the new group of people to be relocated within their environment, within their land, or even even their country. I think that's really important. Um, The next one is planning and preparation. And I think this is one of the major key Key lessons that can be learned. Um, I think in the past, in terms of the Barnabas and the Gilbyshues that were uh, relocated to the Solomon Islands, um, there was very little preparation and planning put towards their relocation. And so a lot of these lessons have been documented by scholars um, doing work in these communities. But I think in terms of moving forward, um, when we talk about climate change, relocation and displacement, I think there's a lot of planning time that needs to be allocated when we're talking about moving a particular community and not only um, time allocated towards planning and preparation, but we need to
0: account for the finance and the cost as well. Thanks, Tammy. I mean your answer really sheds light on the, the enormous complexity of this and I think the point you made too about, well, sure we've got internal relocations happening in the Pacific, but they're within land boundaries. I mean, we haven't even had any crossing over into others, uh, uh, you know, areas of land. So how we uh, deal with that, let alone this notion that whole communities might cross over into other countries, you know, on mass as some kind of entity, that they're they're very complicated issues. And perhaps in, in question time, we can come back to some of those really important points you mentioned. But for now, though, I guess, I just wanted to to ask you what your thoughts are about Fiji's relocation guidelines that that they put out a couple of years ago. Uh,
3: I think, as I mentioned, Fiji is one of the first countries to actually develop a relocation guideline. And I think this is very substantial to to uh, providing guidance on um, the relocation of communities in Fiji. Um, Not only that, but I think it, it also acts as a platform for other countries um, to also start looking into developing uh, relocation guidelines as well as policies um, in cases where the communities or groups of people need to be relocated, um, At present, the plan relocation guidelines for Fiji is um, has been, has been launched but um, hasn't really been implemented extensively um, as a guide to relocating communities. Um, The government of Fiji um, has just recently uh, published or launched its displacement guideline in 2019 following the planned relocation guidelines. Um, The government is currently working on finalizing the standard of operating procedures for the planned relocation guidelines, and that is basically to provide a detailed step-to-step. Uh, procedure um, for stakeholders, for governments, and for anyone who's going to be involved um, in administering any form of relocation within Fiji. So right now, the current time relocation is, is intended for the government and um, the relevant stakeholders involved, but in terms of actually executing all these different procedures and processes, um, they have requested to develop a standard operating procedure so that um, it highlights the different steps, but also um, the different responsibilities that each ministry or each stakeholder should
0: should take on if they are part of the, the, the relocation process. Thanks very much for that update, Tammy. Um, Celia, if I turn back to you now, We know that the media has been fond of perpetuating the idea that sea level rise will force millions of people to move. But as you've noted in some of your work with colleagues, this isn't necessarily grounded in the scientific evidence. You and others um, recently examined 33 studies on how sea level rise might affect migration patterns. And I thought you uncovered some really interesting trends there. So I wondered if you could tell us a bit more about them and how they might or how you think they should influence future policymaking in this
1: area? Yeah, um, thanks for the question, Jane. Um, I think we've probably all read or heard of estimates um, of the number of people that are going to be displaced as, um, you know, the world warms and seas rise and inundate places where people live. Um, and in the media, as you said, is very um, fond of kind of providing these somewhat shocking or catastrophic accounts um, that by the end of this century it could be in the order of hundreds of millions of people displaced um, just due to sea level rise. Um, And I think these estimates do play a very important role. They highlight the magnitude of the the risks and impacts that we're facing um, in a warming world and that does provide some impetus for climate mitigation action um, now. Uh, And it can also help us to plan for environmental futures but um, you know how accurate are these numbers um, that are circulated? Uh, So what I did with a few colleagues is take a look at where these scientific global estimates are coming from and their scientific basis. Um, There's definitely consensus um, that global mean sea level rise has been in the order of 16 to 20 centimetres over the last century or so And projections are also quite significant um, consensus that we might see around 80 centimetres of sea level rise by the end of this century or even beyond um, one metre of sea level rise by 2100 for a high emission scenario. So, you know, this is very concerning. It's certainly going to affect places and populations and people have made attempts to look at a global scale and and assess who's going to be exposed How many people are going to be inundated? Who's going to potentially be displaced? So to cite one example, um, a study by Nichols and others um, suggested that if we see one to two metres of sea level rise by the end of this century, then that will um, result in forced displacement of 190 million people or so. So these kind of studies, you know, they, they really push this message and highlight this message that we're going to have... Significant consequences of sea level rise, um, and there's going to be significant action required. But when you start to unpack the studies, um, there are some really important messages to, to, under, to understand. Um, firstly, that in order to generate uh, global estimates, then you're working with large global data sets that have significant uncertainties around land elevation and population distribution. Um, so there's a kind of um, confidence error around these estimates. Um, secondly, and really importantly, exposure to sea level rise should not be conflated with um, displacement and migration as an inevitable outcome. So I think, as Chanel said... Um, Climate change is a risk amplifier. It's not acting as a sole driver of human mobility and displacement. It interacts with other factors, whether they're political, economic, social and demographic. So it's not a simple cause and effect relationship. And of course, migration and mobility can be prevented or forestalled um, if people put in place adaptation strategies, um, choose to live with risk uh, or put in place um, other protective strategies, such as sea walls, or learning to live with um, the consequences of sea level rise, or um, farming uh, with more salt-tolerant crops. Um, and in fact, a lot of the world's most populated coastlines and coastal cities are actually managed and engineered for flood risk already, such as Tokyo and Shanghai. So it's an extremely worrying future and sea level rise of one metre or more is, is a shocking prospect, but it isn't necessarily that it, um, everyone exposed to these future levels of sea level rise will have to move. Uh, in fact, a lot of pet, in a lot of places, people are moving into coastal areas and urban places where sea level rise is expected to occur. So um, I think the messages are important. This is a uh, you know a very large numbers of people that are going to be affected. Um, for the Pacific Islands, on a global scale, perhaps it's not large numbers, but large proportions of their countries that are going to be affected. And so. These studies matter, they highlight that we need drastic action, Uh, we need to mitigate greenhouse gas emissions if we're going to move towards a more hopeful future, an environmental future that we can live with. Um, So the overwhelming drive has to still be to limit global warming, but we're also going to need to adapt to these changes.
0: Thanks, Celia. And I think that goes back to some of the issues that have been problematic in this area you know, from from the outset. Um, I think back to some of the estimates of, you know, Norman Myers and others uh, saying how many millions of so-called climate refugees there would be this century. And again, some of that comes down to quite crude methodologies of simply saying we've got, you know, we project this amount of sea level rise or whatever it might be, this number of people living there and and kind of multiply it out that way uh, for projected years ahead in time. And the nuance that I think the scholarship, particularly in the last decade or so, has brought is so important. And certainly not to undermine the fact that we need action on, on climate change, but to really understand what kind of uh, factors are going to affect movement and what sorts of solutions are best tailored to them. I, I guess coming back to you, Tammy, you, you touched on the importance of land in the Pacific context, um, but, but also of the sea, of course. And I wondered if you could tell us a bit more about that. You know, what how important, what, what is the role of the land and the sea to Pacific peoples and, and to that to Pacific identities, please?
3: Thanks, Jane, for that question. Um, so I guess we've heard so much, there's so much debate, there's so much discussion on the importance of land um to the Pacific people, especially in the context of climate change and the future of Pacific island communities that are really vulnerable to um to climate change and related disasters, so land is very important to the Pacific not only culturally but um it influences and shapes um the social spiritual the economic and to some extent the political aspects um, of people's lives um, way of thinking and also relationships um for pacific island um As I mentioned earlier on, there's a lot of debates on the loss of land um, and the loss of identity um, if people are subject to being relocated in the future as a result of climate change, specifically looking at um, communities such as um, Kiribati, Tuvalu, the Marshall Islands that are quite low and their populations might be threatened to relocate in the future. For the Pacific, land is fundamental to the existence of the people. It is the basis of the survival. So land is seen and is embodied as nurturing. And I think a lot of there's different communities across the Pacific that perceive land um, as a placenter, some as a mother, Um, people are interrelated with the land so they cannot be detached Um, And so by moving them away as a result of climate change simply means uprooting them from the basis of their livelihood and survival, Um, and I think there's a lot of debates around that, um, the relationship between Pacific people, the importance of land in relation to their identity as well, Um, but I think it when we look at the importance of land in the Pacific, it, it is also important to not only look at land as a physical and earthly substance, but rather um, to look at land and everything that it constitutes in terms of the ecological environment, the trees, the plants, the animals, the organisms, the rivers, the soil, and every other living thing and non-living thing that constitutes the land and that defines and gives meaning to Pacific Islanders and who they are as a people. Um, Sometimes it is often hard to comprehend being detached from the land as a Pacific Islander if you're forced to be relocated as a result of climate change but people are an extension of the land and as, as I mentioned People embody the land so when people move away from a particular land they become an extension of that land but I think the discussion around uh, displacement when you're being displaced from the land is different um, as opposed to you being an extension of the land without losing your actual land. Um, when people are forcefully removed from their land Um, they feel and they see it as being displaced or being uprooted from the land. And I think the example of the Gilbitches in the Solomon Islands, um, when I did work with them is they actually acknowledged that they felt like they were being uprooted from the land. Uh, It's because they feel like they were forced to move. Um, And I think perhaps the same perception is also being embodied by a lot of Pacific Island communities and people that are maybe subject to relocation in the future. Um, In terms of the relationship of the land and the sea, very often when we talk about Pacific Islands identity identity in the context of climate change and migration, we often talk about and view land as a separate entity uh, from the ocean, but they're very interconnected, so the land and the ocean and the people are interconnected. Um, Pacific people who live in proximity to the ocean identify themselves as people of the sea, and this is to accentuate the relationship, um, the deep deep cultural and spiritual relationship and connection to the ocean. Um, Recently, Pacific Island countries have been um, emphasizing their identity as oceanic states, and this is basically to just highlight the significance of the ocean their relationship with the ocean, not only as a body of water and the space that is being continuously contested, a space that, um, but a space and a volume of water that moves that connects people between islands, um, between different islands that connects people as well and allows people to exchange, to exchange, to interact um, in this particular space. Um, But the ocean is also a discrete place where uh, identities
0: are constructed and also reconstructed. Thank you so much for that, Tammy. And I think, you know, one of your last points there about how the ocean connects people um, and and always has done is something that we really need to to bear in mind. And remembering that Pacific peoples have always been very mobile. It's only in the last... um, know, century or so that that mobility has been limited a lot more uh, formally through legal constructs although of course uh, even now many pacific peoples uh, work across the globe and I think that really struck me when I was uh, visiting Rambi in Fiji where the Barnabans uh, had relocated to just how mobile a lot of people were even though they would say to me I would never want to leave my home I then discovered that they were working on ships for 10 months of the year so it's Again, for um, for someone coming from a different perspective, really trying to understand what is being said and meant. Um, it, you know, when it comes to how we all start to think about mobility, displacement, migration and relocation. Um, Chanel, if I can turn to you because I think something that's a bugbear of mine, um, yeah. although I understand the the labelling of it, uh, is this notion of the the climate refugee. So from a refugee law perspective, how do disasters and climate change impacts feed into refugee protection claims? Can people be refugees on account of climate-related factors? Well, under the 1951 Refugee Convention, it
2: delineates who a refugee is. And under that very clear and concise legal definition, what is required is not only that someone is outside of their country of origin, but also that they have a well-founded fear of persecution based on on one or more of five grounds. And also that the state is unable and unwilling to protect them. However, as we've already noted, typically in terms of displacement caused by natural disasters and climate change, it does tend to be internal and particularly in this region. And in turn, what that means is that um, they won't meet that first hurdle. However, as I've already noted previously in my response earlier, there are a number of other factors that need to be considered when we're looking at individuals who may have had to leave because of climate change or natural disasters and across that border. For example, was in, were there circumstances in that country which has led to heightened tensions or conflict and in turn certain groups being targeted? Similarly, are governments withholding protection to certain groups in terms of humanitarian relief? There are some examples. I think also um, it's relevant to consider and look to regional refugee instruments. Um, In particular, in Africa, we have the OAU Convention, and then in Latin America, there's the Cartagena Declaration. The reason being is it has an expanded definition in terms of who a refugee is, and it may apply in the context of people displaced by natural disasters and climate change. However, the appetite by states to apply that extended definition in this context is not um, very uh, enthusiastic, I should say. Finally, I do just wish to to point to international human rights law and complementary forms of protection, because in 2019, we did see a human rights committee decision And one of the findings was that if an individual faces climate change induced conditions that violate uh, violate the right to life, return would uh, contravene articles under the ICCPR. So although ultimately that case was not successful, what it has done is place states on notice around what their obligations are under that particular convention under human rights law more broadly.
0: Thanks, Chanel. And I think um, there's certainly been a lot of, uh, you know, the the thinking on this really has progressed and developed a lot in in recent years. Um, And UNHCR in October last year issued these legal considerations about, you know, how we think about uh, refugee protection in this context. And I think one of the really important things that they pointed to, and that a scholar Matthew Scotts pointed to in his work is that we need to conceive of of disasters in their social, economic, political context. Um, And and as you were saying, you know, they can provide the backdrop for a lot of stuff that would found an ordinary refugee claim. And I think this broadened thinking, rather than just saying, you know, does a disaster cause persecution? We've moved well beyond that to have a far more nuanced understanding of it. So I think it's a little bit, watch this space in terms of how future decision makers respond. Celia, back to you. Um, one of your projects on Pacific, or in the Pacific on the Pacific seeks to integrate mobility with climate change adaptation and development goals. I wondered if you could tell us a bit more about what you have found uh, so far, please. Uh,
1: okay, um, I think climate change and um, climate change adaptation and sustainable development are very high priorities. Uh, for all Pacific countries, but they're often kind of siloed and increasingly in the policy space, um, say for example with the International Organization for Migration, there are efforts to look at the ways that climate change adaptation and sustainable development and human mobility um, need to work together in order to move towards, uh, you know, livable and hopeful futures. So, I'm working with a a really great group of Australian and Pacific-based researchers and practitioners, um, including the International Organization for Migration and UNSGAP, um, on a project that's um, seeking to document the ways that climate-related migration and mobility um, can not only enable adaptation to emerging climate risks, but also offer pathways to achieve um, broader development goals. we're well, looking at different types of mobility and migration, and that might be um, Pacific Islanders who engage in international training and education programs in Australia, um, people who participate um, from the Pacific Islands in labour migration or seasonal worker schemes in Australia, or um, displacement and community relocations within um, Pacific Island uh, countries and territories. and and how these different pathways, migration pathways, can influence both adaptation and sustainable development goals. Um, It's early days. The project has been hugely disrupted, of course, by COVID-19 and border closures and all kinds of things associated with um, that pandemic. Um, But to give one example, we're looking for example at how relocation of uh, low-lying communities uh, to higher ground might offer a way to not only adapt to climate impacts such as um, coastal erosion, saltwater intrusion, flooding, but also meet broader sustainable development challenges such as um, access to education, services, health facilities, water and sanitation. So to take a really well-known example, um, in Fiji, several years ago, um, a low-lying coastal village uh, of um moved actually within their ancestral land, which raises questions about whether it's really migration, if you're still in the place that you have a sense of belonging. Nonetheless, they moved to higher land um, for the community as a whole, and climate change is certainly considered by the community and the government, provincial government, as um, driven in part by climate change. So in moving um, about two kilometres uphill, they've moved away from the site of coastal risk, but they're also rebuilding their community in ways that support these broader human development goals. So um, children have increased access to education. There has been um, livelihood diversification, so lots of programs to support um, new crops and aquaculture and um, other kind of livelihoods. uh, um, There has been really significant effort to involve the whole community in decision-making, including women, um, better housing and sanitation and access to electricity via solar panels and things like that. So you could say that this relocation is achieving the dual aims of climate adaptation and um, development goals. But if you start to unpack the layers, there are also also risks. So in moving away from a very subsistence life down by the coast, um, closely connected, as Tammy was saying, to ancestral um, fishing uh, coast and land, and there's an increased dependence on on monocrops like pineapples and bananas. Um, There's also improved access to roads and urban centers so diets are changing Um, whereas at the old coastal site there was a lot of diversity in in fish and fruits and vegetables at the new site people are relying increasingly on packaged food and processed food so this this means there are look to be emerging risks around non-communicable diseases such as obesity and diabetes that are cropping up in this site of relocation so I think, you know, these are really complex stories where migration, mobility, relocation can contribute to adaptation and development, but also bring um, new risks that we need to plan for and manage um, over time. That's fascinating, Celia. And
0: I guess, you know, one of the things that I was um, reflecting on is from all of this, what lessons can we learn? Um, you know, in the context of COVID nineteen or, or moving beyond COVID nineteen, are there things that you think we should be um, drawing on?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's it's a very interesting time when you have these dual global crises of climate change and COVID nineteen. Um, I think both of them are very stark illustration that our world is highly interconnected, um, and for the Pacific, that's puts them in it, it puts Pacific islands countries, territories in quite an interesting position because they have not been the main contributor to greenhouse gas emissions and global climate change, um, nor are the Pacific Islands the place where um, this particular pandemic emerged. Yet of course, these are impacts that are experienced in the Pacific. Um, one thing that's been really remarkable is with COVID-19 and I think somewhat hopeful is that it has illustrated that we do have capacity for inc- massive action and alteration to the ways that we behave, to our policies, to our e- economic systems. And certainly with COVID-19, it hasn't been perfect. We've seen loss- losses of huge numbers of lives, jobs, businesses. Um, but we've also seen that if we are determined and, and make major changes, then things can be accomplished very quickly. And perhaps this gives us, some hope that we can actually, you know, as a species, find a way to address climate change. You know, we've we have dealt with COVID nineteen uh, um, rapidly and and quite effectively in many places. So um, perhaps there's some there's some hope in that. Um, but more specifically for the Pacific, I think both climate change impacts and COVID nineteen um, mean we need to question assumptions about vulnerability and exposure to risk. Um, The Pacific has largely avoided the pandemic. They're they're among the least affected region of the world. Um, A lot of people have cited the remoteness of Pacific Islands as a major factor. But actually the Pacific Islands have been incredibly effective at taking proactive steps, locking down borders, taking rapid action. And I think it's the same in in the climate change space. They're often held up as these iconic sites of vulnerability and risk and exposure, yet the Pacific Islands are also places where some of the most um, forward-thinking and active um, policy and community action is occurring. So there are lots of synergies and complexities um, going on with COVID-19 and climate change at the moment, definitely, and lessons to be learned. Thank you very much
0: for that analysis, Celia. It's really good to get your, your take on this. Tammy, back to you. We know that gender can have a significant impact on how people experience disasters, um, as well, you know, not just while they're going through a disaster, but the aftermath as well, um, including what possibilities they might have to move. In your own work and experience in the Pacific, what are the particular gender challenges that you see? And how do we ensure that they're not overlooked? I suppose part of this too, goes back to something you said earlier about who gets to decide whose voices are heard and, and how do we ensure that we get a, a diverse um, representation of views and perspectives?
3: Thanks Jane. Um, I think when we talk about gender, um, gender is, is gender is a complex, topic um, of discussion, um, especially in the Pacific context in relation to climate change, relocation and disasters, Um, sometimes it's misunderstood, um, um, especially within the context of the Pacific. Um, But I think what's important, I think the first thing that's important is to um, understand first the variation and the dynamics of gender roles, the past structures and relationships within different cultural and social spaces um, in Pacific Island communities. Um, Because very often when we talk about gender in the Pacific, there is a strong inclination towards um, women's empowerment, towards women's inclusion in decision-making, and opportunities for women's voices. And that is great, but I think it's really essential to understand first, the cultural context of how gender roles are perceived, um, are performed in different spaces within Pacific Island communities. Um, But I think there are a few challenges, gender challenges are based on the work that I've been doing in the Pacific. I think one of, the, one of the things is to the need to recognize and understand the different gender roles, especially when we talk about um, gender. So we're not only focusing on women, but we are also focusing on men, women, and also youths and children within a community, especially during, um, during and in the aftermath of disasters and in situations where people uh, may have to move. And how are these roles being challenged um, within this different time spans, um, or transformed, and their implications, especially in shared spaces such as evacuation centers or temporary shelters. Um, so when we talk about, I think there's a lot of studies on gender um, in relation to disasters. So during disasters, the role of women, and also in the aftermath of disasters, and there's a lot of um, there's a lot of emphasis as well um, on the implication of Um, what happens in evacuation centers, especially in relation to women. And I think um, when we talk about different gender roles and challenges, I think it's really important to evaluate how these different gender roles um, are either affected, transformed, or disregarded within these different spaces. Because uh, within the Pacific context, um, different roles are exhibited and carried out. Um, um, assumed in the household as well as the community and so when you when you gather in a shared space where all these different cultural boundaries are sometimes um, dismissed like how does that space affect your role as a woman your role as a man Um, and I think one of the other challenges is most Pacific Island countries are patriarchal and so it is important to ensure the visibility and acknowledgement of women's contribution towards development in the household as well as the community and towards decision making. Um, I think one of the things as well that's important to perhaps um, perhaps look perhaps scholars should look into researchers that work in this area should look into is the impacts of climate change and disaster on gender roles in the Pacific because specific people, um, the role, the gender roles of specific people are built in um, through interactions with the environment. And so if the environment changes, if you have ecosystem collapsing, how does that affect or changes or transforms the role of women, the role of men um, in relation to development or even decision making? Um, I think one of the things that's been highly deba- debated when we talk about gender in the context of the Pacific is um, the need for women to participate in decision making. Um, and while that's very important, I think we really need to understand also the processes that women are involved in um, towards contributing to the final decisions that's often articulated by men within cultural settings. Um, yeah, I think I think for me it's um, it's really important to understand these different spaces. So spaces that women's role are visible, and spaces that men's roles are more visible than women. And I think by understanding how these different roles are assumed, um, are displayed, um, can actually really contribute towards us empowering women as well as men um, in terms of. Um, their gender roles, as well as addressing our gender roles, especially in the Pacific.
0: Thank you so much, Tammy. Well, so far we've been focusing on people who are moving in some way, but Celia, you've also had a look at people who stay put, um, sometimes described as trapped populations, people whose circumstances mean that even when they are exposed to risks, they don't have the capacity to move out of harm's way. What should we be doing to identify and protect or assist them, and how you know how has that been or um, how have you seen that play
1: out in your own research uh yeah, it's a really interesting point. I think overwhelmingly there's been a focus on um, people who are displaced or moved because of climate risks and impacts um, but over the last several years there's been a growing attention. Paid to what is often referred to as trapped populations so people who don't have the resources uh, or the capability to leave places Um, and some people would argue that these uh, these populations might even be much higher than the numbers that we we see who uh, move because of climate change Um, they don't have financial capital resources legal options so an example would be for uh, in Bangladesh, there have been some studies showing that with um, flooding in delta areas, um, there's actually a reduction in people who move or are able to move, and because their income is disrupted um, and they lack resources. So, trapped populations are, you know, a concerning group of people uh, experiencing climate impacts but the the term is a bit problematic because of course there will also be people who don't move just because they don't want to move they want to remain in places of attachment Um, and this is a really big issue of course in the pacific islands where there are strong attachments to place to family to socio-cultural identity and continuity even though the pacific islands are often characterized as a highly mobile um, region there are these really strong attachments to land and ocean and so people might choose to accommodate coastal risks or put adaptive measures in place or just live in sites of exposure um, because because they don't want to move. So for uh, what that I think means for policy and practice is that There's a need for a shift away from an overriding concern on the climate refugee or the climate migrant to look at immobile populations. We obviously need policy and initiatives that support people to adapt in places where they uh, are confined or want to stay. Um, We're also gonna need to find uh, ways to support people who want to move but currently lack the resources or political capacity. Um, And really importantly, to ensure that people are not forced to move or expected to move against their will, that people are enabled to stay if they want to stay. Um, And that's a big ask with the types of climate risks that that have emerged and will continue to um, grow and amplify. Thank you very much for that, Celia. And
0: yes, I mean, that's absolutely right. It's how how do we empower people, enable people to stay in place if that's what they wish. At the same time, of course, addressing the displacement or desire to move that that we know is also there. And so Chanel, back to you, what institutional role do you see UNHCR playing when it comes to displacement in the context of climate change and disasters now and into the future? Although uh, in the past,
2: UNHCR has been very much engaged in a range of activities in this space. A lot of our work has perhaps been ad hoc, Um, particularly operationally we've acted when we've had proximity in terms of the disasters and been requested to do so by government. And what is clear is we haven't really had a necessarily very clear strategic institutional um, framework in terms of how to respond. And in part it's because of a range of issues related to, um, for example, our core mandate issue. We'll overstretch ourselves, we won't focus enough on the refugees, but also around resourcing, finances in particular, and staffing when we've already we already have a, over 20 million refugees under our mandate. But there has been a significant shift for the reasons that I have mentioned um, when you first uh, under the first question, and we have prepared a new strategic framework on climate action um, as an organisation. They have three separate pillars and under the first pillar we focus on legal and normative frameworks so this is around how protection of people who are forced to flee in natural disasters and climate change need to be addressed whether it's guiding law or policy or looking at catalyzing international discussions in this space the second pillar relates to how we can enhance resilience of our persons of concern in terms of responding to climate change and other environmental risks and strengthening preparedness It's also around looking at renewable energies and ways that we can really do things differently. Uh, One example is in Bangladesh, where we received 700,000 Rohingya refugees. When they arrived, in terms of cooking fuel, they were using the nearby forests um, for that purpose. Unfortunately, that was depleted very quickly. And rather than continuing to provide firewood, we shifted to providing liquid petroleum gas. And in that instance not only did it allow the soil to recuperate um, and to reduce the risk of landslides but it also had health benefits as well as reducing the risk of gender-based violence particularly because women tend to be the ones going out to collect the collect sort of firewood. The third, third pillar institutionally that we're looking at is how we um, can green ourselves UNHCR as an organisation so that's around reducing our carbon footprint but in terms of um, more broadly, our response, we're looking at being more anticipatory in terms of our approach and becoming less of a reactive agency. So we can be more prepared in terms of
0: addressing the challenges that do arise when we see these forms of displacement. Um, Chanel, I just wanted to ask you a follow up about that, which is um, how is UNHCR working with other humanitarian actors on this issue, whether specifically in the Pacific or you know more globally? Sure, for us, um, our partnerships, are absolutely
2: critical. None of us can go about addressing these enormous challenges alone. And that's reflected in our new strategic framework where we're partnering not only with affected communities, of course, we need to hear their voices, but also other UN country team, financial institutions, the private sector and NGOs, to name a few. Um, UNHCR is already um, working on two key platforms I'd like to refer to. Firstly, we're a standing inviting to the steering group of the platform on disaster displacement also known as the pdd and that's a state-led initiative now chaired by fiji which focuses on the implementation of the nansen initiative protection agenda one other platform relates to our membership of the task force on displacement known as the TSD. so these t- these partnerships have work plans And UNHCR works with other agencies and organizations to implement protection responses in this space. For example, in 2018, under the TEFD work plan, we engaged um, in terms of commissioning a report on mapping guidance and tools in terms of responding to the human rights issues for people displaced by climate change. Another project I wish to refer to um, relates to a partnership in terms of the Sahel region. So in that region, what we're seeing is is it's one of the fastest growing displacement crises in the world. Um, There's indiscriminate violence by armed groups, which is forcing individuals to flee. And this is coupled with not only climate change, but other megatrends. For example, we're anticipating a doubling of the population in the next 20 to 30 years. And also a reduction in terms of the productivity of the land by 20 sorry probably 30 to 40 percent that was from the world bank so we've entered into a partnership with both IOM and PDD um, funded by the French government for 1.5 million euros and what that will be focusing not only this year and the next year is around awareness raising information sharing disaster risk Reduction, as well as clean energy to address the challenges uh, from displacement on climate change and natural disasters.
0: Thank you so much. I've got a couple of final questions before we turn to some of the um, questions being posed by our audience members. And I just wanted to come back, given that this is an academic conference to the role of scholarship. And Tammy, to you, what, what do you see as the role of scholars working in this field? And do Pacific scholars have a particular role to play?
3: Um, I think a lot of the scholars working in this field have um, done a lot of work, extensive work being done on climate change migration and relocation in the Pacific. Um, In terms of research and publication, um, I think however, there is a need, a crucial need to ensure that the, the work and I'm talking about scholars that have the opportunity to do research and document um, work on climate change, relocation and displacement in the Pacific to ensure that it does not only contribute towards knowledge and research and policies on displacement in the context of disasters and climate change, but really use their research finding to inform and inspire um, innovative and applicable solutions for the Pacific. Um, specifically to help helpers and help the Pacific people to mitigate and adapt adapt to climate change. Um, I think Pacific scholars even have a bigger role in this because um, we are off the Pacific and therefore have a better understanding um, in terms of the degree of climate change impacts on our communities and people. Um, we have insights to the level of adaptive capacity as well as resilience of um, the communities, and also the instance of what, what displaces or makes the people feel displaced, um, especially when we talk about climate change, relocation. Um, I think as Pacific scholars, our insights and experiences can significantly inform and contribute towards solutions um, that are feasible, Um, that can be implemented and that are applicable to the Pacific Islands context, but as well as um, sustainable solutions that are helpful to safeguarding the Pacific Islands and the people from um, displacement in the era of climate change.
0: Thank thank you, Tammy. That, That was really helpful and very interesting to hear. Chanel, turning finally to you then, how useful or influential is scholarship for the work that UNHCR does? My view is it's absolutely
2: critical, um, particularly as when we join UNHCR, we tend to get on a, the treadmill, so to speak, um, responding to emergencies or alternatively, we have very limited opportunities to really step back and reflect upon how we can do our job better and respond to the protection challenges for our displaced uh, persons or persons of concern. And really the value of academics has been well recognized by UNHCR over many years, whereby we've engaged consultants, for example, on a range of issues to help us develop not only our policy and operational responses, but also our doctrinal position on very specific legal issues. Indeed, one of the areas of added value in this area in particular is that academics can assist with our institutional memory Um, in terms of our own organization, funnily enough, and also providing recommendations on how to move forward. Specifically, um, one example is a report that was commissioned um, in 2017. It was an academic paper uh, for UNHCR, and that really has been pivotal in terms of uh, realigning our institutional response in this particular space around protection. UNHCR has also partnered with academic institutions, particularly the Georgetown University, where we've prepared relocation guidance and together with other partners on protection issues related to human rights on displacement in terms of climate change. And more recently, there was a paper early last year that was commissioned by an academic and actually fed into the October paper that you've mentioned earlier, Jane, um, which really looked at refugee law in the time of climate change disasters and also conflict. So it's incredibly important, that body of work. Um, I also wish to perhaps highlight that we tend to be more headquarters focused in terms of engaging with academics. But at every level of our um, engagement or offices, I should say, around the world, there is a need to also engage perhaps more informally on an ad hoc basis. In our office, for example, we've had uh, brown paper lunches where we've had the opportunity of cross-fertilisation with academics on a range of issues. But it's not only on the human rights um, sorry, in the international refugee law arena, but of course it expands to human rights migration, looking at scientists' views, um, economists, geog- um, geology, etc. So it's a broad
0: range, which is integral to our work. Thanks, Jane. Well, thanks, Chanel, and that hopefully is very inspiring for the scholars in the audience to know that their work is read, it is useful, and it can uh, and does have an impact on the work that UNHCR and, and indeed other actors carry out. So they were the questions that I had wanted to raise with our panelists, and I hope that you, like me, have really enjoyed and learnt from this discussion. So I now wanted to turn to some of the questions posed by you, our audience. And um, I guess one that has has cropped up is, you know, it's all very well to speak about things that might be done, particularly, you know, legally treaty obligations that might be interpreted in such a way that more people would obtain protection, but is there the politi- political will out there by governments to, you know, to provide that protection? And the point that the, the questioner raised was, you know, if we look at Syrians who were fleeing their homes, there was a turn towards more subsidiary or temporary forms of protection. So is there in fact a retreat from providing protection for those who are already fairly and squarely within the remit uh, of international refugee law? Janelle, I might turn to you first if I may for a response, but of course, Cami and Celia are most welcome to respond as well.
2: Thanks, Jane. And that's a curly question to start with because it is in a very, perhaps, a different um, world that we live in. And I think it's perhaps in many ways also highlighted again by last year with the pandemic, where we've seen borders really being reinforced, people not being able to move. Um, or leave even their own countries under peaceful conditions because of this public health issue more broadly. I do appreciate um, in some instances that there has been a shift to temporary forms of protection but I also would like to highlight in areas where it perhaps seemed novel around for instance the membership of a particular social work group category. That was initially perhaps provided, um, applied in a limited way, but over time what we've seen is expand, um been expanded and applied by decision-makers to really ensure that protection is extended to a range of um, individuals who may be facing persecution. And I'm really thinking of people within the LGBT plus community. Um, if you look at, for example, child soldiers, etc. at one point in time that was quite novel um, and it wasn't it was perhaps seen to be an overreach but it really has become um, a common application in the context of expanding that protection space. So I do think um, as that uh, there's a lot of advocacy to do. I'm not going to shy away from that. And that's part of our job working with other protection agencies and academics to ensure that, that there's not a narrow analysis um, in terms of looking at the refugee definition. As our October guidance said, it is about stepping back um, and I do think that there will be opportunity to um, ensure that it's applied in a balanced way uh, to ensure that those have, that have protection concerns can access it. But um, it will it will take a lot
0: of advocacy and discussions, and it's a space to be developed. I mean, one thing that I, that I was thinking about that perhaps you you would come in on is that you know this is the the, the protection aspect is but one of a number of um, tools in the toolbox, really. And I think talking about enhancing cross-border mobility as well um, is part of this. I don't know if Celia or Tammy either, if you want to speak to that.
1: Um, yeah, I mean, I think this is one of the problems of framing uh, climate-related mobility in terms of um, and being analogous with a refugee context. You know, climate-related mobility, say in the Pacific, as we've said, is not across borders. So it's about how can we um, support countries and communities to move when they when they want to move, and that might be um, not about accessing international human rights law mechanisms, but about enabling countries to access. Um, Funding through, 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 for example, the Green Climate Fund. And at the moment, I think it is very difficult to access that type of funding for those types of adaptation initiatives. There's a heavy weighting towards um, mitigation. Um, you need to be accredited in order to access that global funding. Um, and as a, you know, a social scientific researcher, where my engagement is primarily working with Pacific researchers at a community level, um, my sense is that's deeply frustrating that um, communities are, are, are aware there are these huge pools of international funding out there, but how on earth to access them? So This isn't people saying we want to be recognised as refugees and offered protection across borders, although, you know, of course there are well known examples of that of, say, someone recently from the Kiribati applying to New Zealand to try and get um, a- afforded protection and that was knocked back because it didn't fit the criteria exactly. But at a community level, I don't think people wanna be recognized as as refugees. They wanna be enabled to adapt, to move if they want to, and to access the funding and support to do that. Um, I I mean, I'm sure, Tammy, you have a a Pacific Islander perspective on on that point as well. And and Tammy, perhaps before you respond,
0: You know, one question that I was thinking of is, what about calls for enhanced labour mobility to Australia and New Zealand, for instance, um, not only on a temporary basis but also on a more permanent basis? I'm not sure if that's something you'd want to address.
3: I think it's it's it's, it's a complex issue, um, and it depends like how 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 we approach it, um, at what level, and from what lens. Um, with regards to, um, you know, funding that's available there to assist Pacific Island countries, I think the processes in applying for this funding is very, it's complex for a lot of the Pacific Island countries that we don't have the expertise um, to apply as somebody who really knows the process to, to tap into this kind of different fundings that are available. Um, on the note of You know moving um migrating and being protected i think i think it's still not being widely discussed in the pacific especially the notion of displacement um i think um when it comes to talking about displacement is such a very it's a very sensitive um sort of topic to to talk about because um in the Pacific, um, communities and households are established on social relations, and so when people have to move, they're not entirely displaced. Um, in some ways, they're perhaps physically displaced from the land in which they live, but when they move, um, there's other people there. They, they have relations that are out there to also support them um, in settling into new um, new locations. So um, I think the whole um notion of displacement is yet to be discussed um, extensively within the pacific. Uh, but in relation to enhanced labor mobility, um, I've had an interest in that because um, a lot of the labor mobility schemes have just been on temporary basis, and i think I think if there's um, an opportunities if there's opportunities to actually um, provide more permanent basis labor labor mobility. Maybe that will be beneficial to families and people within the Pacific because they can actually move and know that um, they have some form of security where they're going um, compared to temporary basis uh, labor mobility schemes. And although that might be perceived as um, as is something that is contributing to adaptation within pacific island countries um there are other challenges and issues as well arising from this um organized schemes that um that also need to be taken into consideration when planning labor labor mobility schemes especially the ones that are on a temporary basis um
0: yes
1: Yeah, I mean, just to add to that, Tammy, I absolutely agree with you that it seems perverse to present temporary schemes or seasonal worker schemes as a migration with dignity pathway. They're not long-term sustainable options for anyone and certainly not for everyone. They're for people that can do certain jobs and roles. Um, So the project that... Um, You know, we've been working with you, Tammy, and others on, we've been talking to Solomon Islanders who've um, come to Australia through the Seasonal Worker Program, and no one says they're accessing that program as a way to adapt to climate change. In fact, it's almost um, the reverse, that it's not a pathway away from the Pacific Islands, but having an income source and... Being able to provide money back to communities means people are investing in homes so you have even more to protect even more reason not to want to leave you know you're investing in home in education housing in wells in water and sanitation um and so it's more reason to want to belong and stay in the pacific islands which i think is just yet another call to action to the global community we need an alternative future so that these are viable places for the long term for people to live Absolutely. Thank you
0: both for those interventions and um, just picking up on that need for more permanent migration pathways and this is a bit of a plug here but uh, Jonathan Pryke from Lowy Institute and I last year wrote a Caldor Centre policy brief looking precisely at what Australia could do to enhance those more permanent migration opportunities for people in the Pacific um, if and when that's what they desire. Um, I would just like to turn to, or in fact, perhaps collapse the question, if I might, noting that we are almost out of time. There was one question about, are there things in existing legal mechanisms to safeguard rights? That's one. Another question, which might seem initially quite separate, was um, what child-focused anticipatory approaches might exist to support people here? For example, um, education for children likely to be displaced in the future. And so I'm trying to, I guess, put them together in a way to say, well, look, you know, there is a law that is specifically focused on the rights of children. Um, that's one part of it. Of it. But, um, for, you know, for others too, what are the, some other policy-based interventions that might exist specifically to assist children? I might just do a quick, I know the, the question deserves a lot more than this, but in the interest of time, I might just ask each of you if you'd like to contribute something, um, perhaps starting with you, Tammy.
3: Um, I think recently there's a lot of uh, discussions around human rights in the context of climate change, especially when we're looking at migration, relocation and displacement in the Pacific. Um, I think the challenge when we talk about um, human rights in the Pacific is because um, individuals do not exist on their own in the Pacific context. uh, We exist as a household as a community. So when we talk about human rights, uh, we're not actually um, looking at my individual rights. So when we talk about my right to access a better livelihood, we're talking about the rights of the entire community collectively. And so in that case it's really hard to unpack human rights in that context. And um, um, I think that should I think there's there's a need to explore more of this in the context of the Pacific to really um to really bring out and to really um, to allow Pacific people to really understand what is human rights in their context or in our context as Pacific Islanders. Human rights in relation to the land, to the environment, to our rights to survive um, in relation to climate change. um, And how can we protect it? How can these rights be protected um, as a community, um, as a household? Because we cannot protect our rights as an individual because we exist we coexist with each other as well as with the environment, so it becomes complicated when
1: we, when we talk about human rights in that in that sense um look I'll just make a very brief comment um, which is that obviously this climate change is an, is an intergenerational issue um which is very challenging for democratic institutions which are set up on four-year cycles five-year electoral cycles we need to act now for the future of our kids and our grandkids so it's not just about children's rights now but children and their children into the future um, and I'll leave it at that and
0: Chanel finally to you um, in 30 seconds if you can talk sure,
2: very that. brief um, I think Thank it you. depends on whether it's internal or cross-border Um, Around the internal, there are two aspects I want to point to, Um, of course, first and foremost, with state, but also there's the internal displacement guiding principles, um, which is relevant in those contexts and sets out human um, rights issues in displacement context. The second um, is perhaps the Sendai framework as well, which um, also sets out some of the human rights issues. In terms of cross-border, um, in particularly in relation to children, they not only have the range of rights for refugees under the Convention, which are extensive around socio-economic rights, but importantly around education, um, elementary, under Article 22. So I'll keep it short and sweet.